0: I always want to extend a, a thank you to Ms. Dawn and our choir uh, ensemble. Thank you for always leading us excellently. Make much of Jesus. We're blessed to have you, Miss Dawn, and everyone who who serves and leads us in worship. Um, I would ask you to turn tonight to Nehemiah chapters 7, uh, 7 through 9 is where we will be. We'll begin in chapter 7. We do have papers, by the way, if you would like to grab one. There's one. There's a little stack in the back and there's a little stack in the front. So if you did not, uh, you're welcome to, to grab some of those. But there's some interesting things happening in Nehemiah 7 through 9. And there's a little bit of a homecoming that takes place. We'll read about that, um, but since the walls and the gates of the city are finished now, the exiles can return, but you know their, their homes are not rebuilt, and so there's still a lot of work to do. Uh, they, they are safe to a degree because they can be safe inside the walls and the gates are up, but uh, as far as the creature comforts, there aren't too many. Uh But once their physical need has been met, now that they can safely live inside the gates of the city, Ezra returns to the stage. This is where we see Ezra show back up on the scene. And he and Nehemiah together, they partner to meet the people's spiritual needs through the teaching of the Word. So this seems to be kind of a refrain. Every time they return to the Word, uh, some good things happen. And and they they need that. So now that the physical needs are taken care of, the spiritual needs are more in view. So I'm going to read some from Nehemiah 7 because that's the only way that I know how to teach through narrative is to read the narrative. So let's read uh, beginning in Nehemiah 7 and verse, um, verse 1. Now when the wall had been built... And I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, the singers, and the Levites, they had been appointed. I gave my brother Hanani and Hananiah, um, the governor of the castle, charge over Jerusalem, for he was more faithful and God-fearing man than many. And I said to them, Let not the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are still standing guard, let them shut and bar the doors, appoint guards, Uh, From among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, some some at their guard posts and some in front of their own homes. The city was wide and large, but the people within it were few, and no houses had been rebuilt. Uh, Let's see. Verse 5. And then God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy. And I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up at the first, and I found written in it, these were the people of the province who came up out of captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried into exile. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. And then, of course, it goes through a big, long list of families and people and numbers of those families. And that constitutes most of the rest of chapter seven so just a couple of quick points here to make from chapter seven the people return the city is large but the people are few this is just a reminder Uh, things aren't quite as they were so now the temple has been rebuilt foundation has been laid worship has been restored now the city is secure the walls are built and the gates are set up so they're safe And this is one of those moments where it might feel like, hey, we got to where we're going. We got to the end of our goal, and it's just still not like it used to be. The city feels a shell of its former self. It's it's not populated like it used to be. It's, It's somewhat like it used to be, but it's not like the old glory that we remember. Just like the experience they had with the temple. Remember they rebuilt the temple, they laid the foundation of the temple and the old men wept because it just wasn't like it used to be. So what is this doing? This is doing in their hearts a service to remind them that this is not their final destination. Even if they can have their town back, even if they can have their temple back, this is not ultimately what they need. Ultimately, what do they need? They need what we're celebrating right now in Advent. They need Jesus. They need a Savior to bring them full comfort and full consolation. It's it's comforting to a degree to have the temple back. It's comforting to a degree to be back inside the city. But this isn't home yet. This isn't ultimate salvation yet. So um, there are a couple other points here that uh, are worthwhile. It says in verse 5, God put it into my heart. This just highlights the close relationship ...with God uh, shared by Nehemiah. Nehemiah has a close relationship with God. It seems to be a pattern here that God raises up men uh, who have a close relationship with him. And and these are the people who are effective leaders, those who walk with God. And then lastly, the sovereignty of God as a theme. In other words, verse 5, "...then God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials and the people to be enrolled by genealogy." Nehemiah is not saying, hey, I came up with this great idea. He's saying God is the one who put it into my heart. He's the one who led me to do these things. So a couple little observations there. Then comes Nehemiah chapter 8. And the little catchphrase there is I told the men on Saturday morning when some of our men gathered, I I feel like many times that my guitar has one string and I just keep plucking this one string. And that's that the word of God does the work of God. And so if I give you 12 lessons, that might be the heading somewhere uh, in 10 or or 11 of them, that the Word of God does the work of God. Um, But that's what we see in Nehemiah chapter 8. So I want to read, and we will uh, look, let's see, we'll read at least uh, probably the first 12 verses, Nehemiah 8, 1 through 12. And all the people were gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. So there's an assembly that occurs. Those of you who are here on Wednesday nights, we're talking about how the assembly is important, right? The ecclesia, the church, means the assembly. This is what happens the people assembled. And what did they do? They told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seven months. And he read it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday. So there's this picture of the assembly coming together and being so thirsty for the word of God. He read it all day long from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra the scribe took On a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. Let's see. He stood. I'm sorry. Goodness. And Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the the purpose. And beside him stood Midathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand. And a bunch of other guys that I'm not going to take the time to pronounce. Verse 5 And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. You see this pattern. He opens the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people, and he opened it. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So this is think about the posture that they're having. Ezra comes before them. They assemble as one man. Ezra reads the word. They hear the word. They respond, Amen, Amen. They raise their hands. They humble themselves to the ground. This is a posture of worship that they're having before God. Also, a number of, a number of men there. Helped the people, about halfway down, verse 7. These men helped the people. These are Levites. They helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. So you can imagine Ezra standing in front of them reading the law, and these other men, Levites, are, you, you can imagine them uh, milling about, filtering through the crowd, helping the people to understand what was just said. Okay? They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense. This is underlined in my Bible. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. It right. goes on further. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And we'll, uh, we'll treat the rest of this. Uh, no, let's, get, let's keep going. I'm sorry. Verse 10. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready, for this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions and make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. So we learn a lot here. Let's see if we can let's see if we can unpack this in some kind of helpful way. First of all, the people respect the word of God. You notice what happened. First of all, they assembled. They assembled together because to hear the word of God was so important that they needed to be there when it happened. They assembled together. This is a pattern that we see repeated in the New Testament. The people gather, the people of God gather around the word of God. Um, Secondly, the people gather around the word because they recognize its power to change. Think about this, verse 5. As he opened it, all the people stood. There is such a reverence they have such a reverence for the law of God, which is the Word of God, the, the Bible, their Bible. They have such a reverence and such a respect for the Bible that they stand when it is read. And so that's, that's a great, that's a beautiful picture in many churches. Uh, and, and perhaps in this one, I haven't done this as a custom because uh, I, sometimes I feel bad about asking people to stand. But it would be an appropriate thing to do. The Word of God is so worthy that I have been in many churches where it's a custom that, that the pastor says, Would you stand at the reading of the Word of God? Why? Not because anything magical is happening, but because something spiritual is happening. Something incredibly powerful is happening. We're gathering as the people of God, around the Word of God, as believers have all the way back thousands of years, even to the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Why? Because the Word of God has the power to do the work of God. And so we stand... Asking for it to do its work in our hearts. Then next, what happened? Once they heard the word, they worshipped. They worshipped when they heard the word of God. It says in verse 6, And all the people answered, Amen and Amen. And it says that they they lifted up their hands as if to praise God. They bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. So, application. How should we apply what we learned here? We should assemble to prioritize the Word. That's why my guitar has one string on it, and that's the Word of God does the work of God. We need to speak the Word of God. We need to rehearse it to one another. We need to sing the Word of God, and the Word of God needs to be preached. It is uh, the, the sustenance that we need. We should assemble as we are able and prioritize the Word. Secondly, our understanding of the Word should evoke praise of God. I've even known churches, I'm not suggesting we make some kind of radical change, but I I have heard of churches that the preaching comes first and then all the singing happens, right? Because it's the Word of God that moves us to want to worship God. And so I thought that was an interesting picture. I've never actually attended a church that did it that way, but um, it seems that that's at least a picture of what we learn here, is that our understanding of the Word leads us to praise God. And hopefully, after we hear the word of God here, we go out praising him for the rest of our week. Uh, because we have seen, as we said this morning, we have seen the glory of God. And the glory of God leads us to respond to God and to tell others of his glory. Secondly, this is point number two under, under, under Nehemiah 8. Uh, uh, the word of God does the work of God. And that's this. The people need to understand what the word means. Um, God, in his kindness, he gave the people leaders to help them understand and apply the word. It's, It's the understanding of the word that does the work in us. And so many times there are passages in the Bible that are incredibly difficult to understand. And even, even Peter makes mention of this when he's talking about Paul. He says many of the things Paul writes are hard to understand. Um, I have a story from my recent conversation with uh, the, the missionaries from the Latter-day Saints Church. And I, they, were, they were speaking about one of their doctrines that, that I don't accept, and, and that is that baptism... Is a work that you must do in order to be saved. Okay, um, you know, and there are there's a passage in the in the scriptures that says I think it's Acts two thirty eight. Don't quote me on that. Um, but but there are others as well. Repent and be baptized for the remission of your sins. Okay. Now, if we just take that one verse and pluck it out of its context and don't read it in light of the rest of the Bible or in, the re- in, in light of the rest of the New Testament, we might think, okay, I need to repent and I need to go do a work. I need to do works in order to be saved. Well, that's not how we understand salvation at all. We understand salvation to be a gift. Uh, we understand it not to be of works so that no man can boast. And this is the whole point of the whole book of Galatians. The whole letter of Galatians is that is that God's righteousness has been revealed apart from the law, apart from works. Anyway, they were telling me about one of their doctrines that they believe and um, and they believe it based on a passage in 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 first Peter, I think. and he read that verse, a verse that I was familiar with loosely. and I said to them, I said, can I just can I just be really gut level honest with you? I said one of the things that I really struggle with with the Latter-day Saint doctrine, and I didn't say this part, but this is also a very common feature of of Jehovah's Witnesses and and honestly of many cult groups, is that they take a very, very – they'll find a passage of Scripture that's very, very difficult to understand and that commentators really go back and forth about what it means. And then on this little island, on this very difficult, hard-to-understand passage, they construct these big doctrines that are almost bigger than the little ground that it's occupying. You know? And so it, it, it almost looks like this big upside-down pyramid that's trying, to, that's trying to support itself on this very shaky ground. And I said, you know, I said, listen, there are passages in the Scriptures that are very hard to understand, That are less clear than others. And I said, I think it's, you know, I I see this tendency in, in your movement to create huge doctrines and huge beliefs that are very consequential and that are like at the center of what you guys believe based on some of the most obscure passages. That's why many times when a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, they're going to be pulling out all kinds of stuff from like Zechariah and the book of Revelation, and it's going to be like some of the most most difficult, hard-to-interpret passages, and they've constructed all of this stuff on it. Anyway, uh, what's happening here, though, is I got a little bit off on a tangent there. But what's happening here is that the people, are, the people need not only the Word of God, but God in His kindness provides to them people who can help them understand what they're hearing. This happens to the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. 8, right? All right, It's 8 or 9. It's right in there somewhere. But basically the Ethiopian eunuch is, is, is riding back in a chariot, right? Um, and he's reading the law of God. And and um, he asked the question, how can I understand it unless somebody explains it to me? And so the word of God is explained to him. And what is his response? Hey, here's some water. What prevents me from being baptized? In other words, it's necessary not only to read the word of God, but to understand what it means. And so um, the Levites, the Levites help the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places, this is a picture of God do uh, of uh, of the people of God doing one another ministry, right? This is like Ezra's up here telling the law, and the Levites are going out saying, "Hey, you know, do you understand this part? Can I explain this to you better?" It's like the the, the people of God coming together to make sure that everybody understands the import, what the word means. Verse eight, you know, what, what is the nature of their ministry of the word? They gave the sense. Uh, This is a passage that is kind of impressed upon you during seminary. They say, you know, we need our preachers, we need our pastors to be men who can give the sense, who can explain what it means. Uh, In preaching, the goal is not to use a text to make a point. Um, Instead, the goal of preaching is to make the point of the text. There's a difference there. In other words, if, if I had an agenda... If I had a point that I really wanted to pound home, maybe I could find a passage of the Bible that kind of somewhat supports what I want to say. And I just kind of use I, – I use uh, the Bible, as, as David Helm has said, like, like a drunk uses a lamppost, more for support than illumination. A drunk doesn't really use a lamppost to see what he's reading, right? He just uses it to, to hold himself up. That's David Helm has used that, in other words. So sometimes my, my, goal, my goal before you is to use the Word of God not as support for what I want to say, but as, as illumination to see what does God have to say and to, and to expose, to exposit the Word. Um, verses 10 through 12, let's see. Yep, verses 10 through 12 says this. Uh, this, or teaches this This is important because all of life is theological. If we get the theology wrong, we will get our response wrong. Here's what I mean. Look at verses 10 through 12. Nehemiah 8, verses 10 through 12. Um, need to go back to verse 9. Uh, Nehemiah 8, 9 through 12. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people... This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. In other words, here's what's happening. The people have returned to the word. And the word has told them that they haven't been doing what they ought to be doing. They haven't been keeping the law. They haven't been keeping like the holidays, the, the, the Israelite holidays, the festivals, the festival of booths. Right, And so they return to the word. The word says, hey, you guys have been messing up. And what do the people do? They start to weep. This is a very crucial moment. Because the people are confronted with their own sin. And they're driven to despair. Okay, This is a crucial moment. So look what he says. The people begin to weep. For the people wept as they heard the words of the law. The words of the law. Verse 10. Then he said to them, go your way. Eat the fat and drink the sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to the Lord. And do not be grieved, he says, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, it says, saying, be quiet for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way and they to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing. Because they had understood the words that were declared to them. Here's what's happening. We need to be confronted with the Word of God. And we need for the Word of God to convict us. And to bring some sorrow where we have been wrong. But we don't ever stop there. Right? Because on the other side of repentance is joy. Does that make sense? In other words, the point of the Word of God is not simply to drive you to despair. It's to drive us to despair so that we will look to Jesus, repent, and find joy on the other side of repentance. Because repentance is not just some kind of self-hating thing that we do. It's our means of getting back into relationship with God. And that's what the people Of Israel here understand they're almost driven to despair they're about to weep and they're about to to stop what they're doing because they they can't see past the grief they've been confronted with the word of God and they're driven to despair but then the Levites go out and say hey don't don't weep anymore because on the other side of your repentance the joy of the Lord is your strength so don't weep and as a result of them doing some good ministry At a a crucial moment, what happens? All the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing. Um, This is the difference between legalistic preaching and gospel-centered preaching. I've been in a lot of meetings or a lot of... I don't know, church services and chapel services and, and, and Christian meetings where it seemed like the only point was to get you to feel bad for who you are. And then that was it, the end of it. Well, that's like legalistic teaching, legalistic preaching. It's like just kind of pound your conscience into the ground and then pray and go home, right? And somehow I guess we've done some spiritual good for making everybody feel bad. Well, that's not the end the end is gospel-centered. That Remember early on I talked to us about holding the gospel with two hands? We need to have the bad news. The gospel is bad news. But then after the bad news has done its work, the good news is that Jesus can forgive you of all of it. The good news is that everything, everything that the Bible just convicted you about, there is forgiveness for in Christ. That's what's on the other side of repentance. So, friends, repentance is hard. Repentance is really hard work. You know why? Because to repent, you have to be humble. Prideful people don't usually admit that they're wrong. Prideful people usually just buck up, right? And, and, uh, no, not me. Repentance is hard because it requires humility, but on the other side of that repentance, on the other side of it, there's such a joy that comes From knowing God. And that's what the people here see. That's what the people here are able to experience because they heard all of the word of God, not just the first half. All right, let's see. Goodness, we're not making very good time. (laughs) Some of y'all are getting nervous out there. Maybe if I give him a couple amens, he'll land the plane a little sooner, right? I can read minds like nobody. Alright, I'm looking out there. Okay. So apparently, and I, I said all this, uh, let, let me just let's just look to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and hopefully this will show you that I'm not completely off base by what I just said. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8. For even if I made you grieve with my letter. So Paul has had to send a letter to the Corinthian church. And it was a difficult letter. He called him out. He called them on the carpet. And it almost ruined his relationship. Like it was a very difficult letter. He had to have some hard words. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were, look at this, you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief, says in verse 10, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. There's no regret when you repent, right? That's what he's saying here. Whereas worldly grief produces death. Friends, it's, it's the scheme of the devil to try to convince you that you will lose something by repenting. That's what Satan wants you to believe. Oh, if you repent, you'll lose your, you'll lose your reputation in front of other people. If you turn back, they'll, they'll see you're not a big man, you're not a big woman. That if you repent, that'll show that, that you were wrong and you've got to tell everybody that you were right. You got to show everybody that you're not backing down, you're doubling down. But the Bible says that repentance leads to joy where there is no regret. Why? Because on the other side of repentance, Jesus is there. And it's always worth it. He's always worth it. So, application, we should seek to build leaders who can give the sense of the word. In our Sunday school classes, um, in, in every area of our church and our families as we seek to do family ministry. Hopefully we're teaching our we want to teach our men to to lead their families to give the sense of the word, and hopefully um, I'm able to do some of that as well. Hebrews thirteen, seventeen talks about. Uh, something that is is very actually awkward for me to to speak here because it seems self-serving, but listen to the whole verse. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. The reality is, friends, and I feel this very deeply, that one day I will have to give an account for how I pastored this church. And so many times, there may be times where I ask you to follow me, where I can't give you all the information because I can't tell you everything that I know. I'm just going to ask you, would you you just trust me? Because I'm keeping it in my mind that one day I'm going to have to give an account. So, as I teach the Word. Then lastly, we should be serious about theology. Because off-kilter theology leads to off-kilter lifestyle. So what happens here? If the people had had some bad theology, they would have been left in their grief. But they had to have good theology. They didn't just have to have the legalism. They needed the, the whole gospel with both hands. Um, so that they weren't just driven to despair. Let's see here. All right, Nehemiah 8.13, uh, beginning in 8.13. Uh, we're not going to read all of this, but this is the section. The people of God responded to the word. Read with me in verse 8, 13, and following. On the second day, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people, with the priests and the Levites, they came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the Lord. In other words, I'm sorry, the words of the law. There's still a thirst. They're still thirsty for the word of God. They came to him to study the word of the law, and they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seven months. So here's another thing that they haven't been doing right. They come, they hear the word of the Lord, and it's like the word of the Lord just cuts them down again. Like, you guys haven't been doing this. this you're, you're Over the generations, you've lost who you're supposed to be as a people. You haven't even been doing what God has called you as a people to do. And so this is a very discouraging moment. So what do they do? They repent. They turn around. They start doing what the Bible told them to do as a people of Israel. And then it, down at verse 18, it says this, And day by day, from the first day to the last, he read from the book of the law of God. And they kept the feast seven days. And on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. So the word of God, as it says in 2 Peter 1.13, the word of God reminded them of who they needed to be. When they saw who they needed to be, they turned around and they did their best to be who they needed to be. How do we apply this? Well, I would say this. Especially, I have a heart for rural America. Rural America is where I grew up. It's where I pastor now. It's where I want to continue to stay as long as the Lord will allow me. But especially in rural America, there are people all around us who consider themselves to be the people of God, but based on the wrong criteria. Out of love, we need to do our best to gently show them what the Word of God says so that they might return to God. Friends, there are folks, I think there are folks who have probably never darkened the door of a church in 15 years, who if you ask them, if, you know, are, are you a Christian? Oh yeah, me and Jesus are tight. I'm afraid, I'm afraid, I'm afraid that some of our Christianity is more cultural than it is genuine in many quarters of our country. And so perhaps the solution is the same solution that the people of Israel here needed. They just needed to be shown what the Word of God says so that maybe the Word of God would do the work of God in their hearts and they would, run, they would come back to Jesus. All right. The people of God repent and confess their sin. Uh, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. This is a posture of repentance. Look at this. Now on the 24th day of the month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. So they're humbling themselves. They're putting dirt on their heads. They're wearing sackcloth, a very humble thing to wear. And the Israelites separated themselves from all the foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. So they have a posture of repentance. They, they're trying to show outwardly how deeply they feel bad for having left God. Uh, the connection There's a connection between the Word and Reform, verse 3. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord, their God. And so for half the day, they're either reading God's Word or confessing their sins and worshipping God. So why do they do this? Because the Word of God. The Word of God is what they were reading, leading them to repentance, leading them to worship. There's a deep and thoughtful, reverent repentance. Um, here's the thing. Since since I feel like I've been a little long-winded, I'm just going to summarize verses 9 through 31 and ask you all to take my word on what it says. And if you don't trust me, you can read it yourself. Okay? Um, basically, there's a pattern. There's a pattern that happens from verse 9 through 31 where it's like at the end of each paragraph, they say something like, you were holy, but we did wrong. God, you were holy, but we did wrong. Okay, that that happens, it seems like. um, For you have kept your promise, you are righteous. Let's see, what else? Um, Let's see, I didn't write down, I didn't pull, I didn't... include any pull quotes, but that's basically the gist of what happens from verses nine through thirty one. Um, nevertheless, he says this, uh, let's see. He's ta- he's talking about from verse twenty seven on everything that we did, everything that our parents did that was evil again before you. Many years you bore them, verse 30, many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the people of the lands. He's saying basically because of our disobedience, you sent us into exile. Verse 31, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. He seems to be saying all the way through these verses, you were holy, you were good, you were doing right, God, but we were doing wrong. We were doing wrong. We were doing wrong. So the pattern of repentance is God, you're holy, and I was wrong. Okay? Okay. A lot of times we get close to that. We say, God, you were holy, and they were wrong. <laughs> Something like that. God, you were holy, and he's wrong, and she's wrong, right? But the pattern of genuine repentance is, God, you were holy, and I was wrong. Focusing on, on uh, what we can do to fix our problem. All right. Uh, there's a change in the family tree that happens here, and perhaps this will be the last point that I make. A change in the family tree. Remember the old attitude of Israel? Anytime something happened, uh, look at Exodus 15, 24. I've got it down here on your paper. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Like, where are we going to get water from, right? Exodus 14, they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us to die in the wilderness? What have you you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? In other words, we're going to die here. Why did you make us... Travel so far and be hungry to die. Well, we could have just died where we were. That would have been a lot more convenient. Numbers 21.5, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and water, and we loathe this worthless food. But, friends, this is a crucial moment. The Israelites could have had that attitude this grumbling against God this questioning God they could have had that attitude here but they don't they respond as they should in repentance look at chapter 9 Nehemiah 9:32 9, now therefore our God the great the mighty The awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us. Upon our kings, our princes, our priests, and our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings, even in their own kingdom and amid amid your great goodness that you gave them and the large and rich land that you set before them. They did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. In other words, this is a new and improved Israel. They're not doing that mess they were back in Exodus where they're questioning Moses at every turn. After a great miracle, they're turning around saying, where are we going to get water from? It's like, water? Like, he just separated the water. He can take care of water. Like, God does water, okay? Like, he walked through the dry ground and there was no water. Now you wonder where the water's going to come from? And so, basically what's happening here is that was the old attitude that sent them into exile. And now God has purified his people through the judgment. And they've come out on the other side and now they are humble and repentant and they're responding to him the way that they ought to. Friends, may we also be a people who are not stiff-necked. May we not be a people who buck up. May we be a people who are soft of heart and ready and willing to repent. I'm going to pray. Dr. Campbell's going to come and play for a moment of response. I'm going to have the same posture as you. I'm going to sit down here and respond myself to the Word of God, ask God to give me that kind of heart. If you need to talk to me, I'm here uh, for you uh, in this time and this evening. I would ask you just to reflect in the quietness of your heart and respond to the Word of God now.